0: Thank you for listening to this teaching from Table Church. We're in our Advent series right now called How to Hope Again. Now it's been said that we live in a hope-sick world. That means that hope is hard to find and it's evident in everything from our emotional lives to our political discourse. We need to learn how to hope again. And there's no better time than Christmas. So if you're near the Des Moines area this holiday season, we'd love to have you join us at our Christmas Eve service. It'll be at 6 p.m. at the Des Moines Community Playhouse. You can learn more at tablechurchdsm.org. Now, please enjoy this week's message.
1: Good morning, church. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Luke, chapter 1. Verses 46 through 55, and this portion of scripture is known as the Magnificat, or Mary's song. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors.
0: Good morning once again, everyone. Thank you for being here at Table Church. I want to let you know, I was reminded, Nyla said it this morning, I was like, holy smokes, Christmas Eve is two weeks away. So uh, we do have a Christmas Eve service planned for you. Uh, It's going to be right here in the Playhouse on the 24th, 6 o'clock. I hope you come and I hope you bring a friend. A lot of times people are looking for a place to worship on Christmas Eve. And so, uh, you know, you might have a neighbor or a coworker, or a friend or a family member who would love to come. So don't be afraid to invite somebody with you. Um, And also, it's on a Saturday night. Christmas Eve is on a Saturday night. So we will not have Sunday morning services on Christmas Day, all right? just in case you were wondering. But we do have Sunday services a week from then on New Year's Day. So don't stay out too late. Come to church, okay? All right. So psychologist Richard Beck has written uh, that he believes that we live in what he calls a hope-sick world. A hope-sick world. And what he means is that he sees that hope is slowly disappearing in our world, and it's having physical and emotional and spiritual effects on us. For example, he highlights the recent and drastic rise of what professionals call deaths of despair. Deaths of despair are deaths caused by things like suicide and drug overdose and alcohol. And depending on what demographic you're looking at in the United States over the last 10 years, deaths of despair have increased by anywhere from 50 to 300%. The same time period has also seen the rise of many mental health challenges, just an unprecedented amount of these. And so what's going on? What's different now in just the last 10 years? Why is hope so hard to come by today? I wanna try to answer that today. We're in a series, uh, it's an Advent series, and it's called How to Hope Again. This this is because I believe that Christmas is really the key to restoring hope. And this week, we're gonna talk about having hope in times of despair. Despair is when we've lost hope, when we no longer believe that things could get any better, that there are no better days ahead. That's when we're in despair, and I think that there is no better source of hope than the gospel. And I believe that Christmas is when we intentionally remind ourselves of this hope that we have. Now, in order to talk about hope today, we need to learn a word, and it's a word that may be new to many of us, but it's an important word, and I hope that you'll remember it, and I hope that you will start to think about this word and maybe even start to see things through the lens of this word. It's the word eschatology. It's fun to say, would you say it with me? eschatology. This is one of my favorite words, one of my favorite things to study, areas of theology. And in fact, I would even say that it might be one of the most important areas of uh, theology for us to learn as disciples of Jesus. I think that we need to think about eschatology more. Now, what is it? Eschatology is what we believe about the destiny of the world. It's what we believe about the destiny of the world. Okay, Or you could even expand that and say the destiny of the cosmos, of reality, space and time. Like, where's all of this going? Where are we headed with all this thing that we call reality? What's the point? Is there a point? Is it going anywhere? And what's that anywhere look like? And when's it going to happen? All that stuff. That is eschatology. Now, Christian eschatology teaches that God is redeeming this world, that he is here and he is at work. He has come and he is in the world now and he's he's remaking things, he's restoring things in this world and that one day that project of redemption will be kind of finalized in Jesus' victorious return. Now, eschatology does not have to be Christian. We would say that others, non-Christians, they have eschatology as well. In fact, ancient Rome at the time of Jesus and the time of Mary had its own eschatology. As Mary was singing the song that, that, uh, that Cheryl just read to us, that world had its own version of eschatology. They had their beliefs about their destiny, but it did not center around Jesus. In fact, Rome's eschatology centered around Caesar, the king. We have ancient writings that we found that call Caesar Augustus, the Savior of the world. There's writings that describe his good news or gospel, the exact same word in the Greek. That is eschatological language, another fun word. Eschatological, things that pertain to eschatology, just fun to say. Look, it's telling a story about the destiny of the world, and for them, for Rome, that destiny centers around Caesar, He is the one who has been appointed by the gods to rule. Now, America has its own eschatology, too. You know that? In the 19th century, uh, many held the belief that we now call manifest destiny. Manifest destiny taught, you know, that America, you know, we're somehow special, we're destined to expand, to show the world a better way. That's eschatological. We don't talk about that a whole lot today anymore, but it doesn't mean that eschatological themes aren't still persistent. In fact, I'd say that one of the primary ways that that politicians communicate, is through language that we would today look at as Christians and say, that's, that's eschatological language right there. For example, take a look at this. this. This conjures up some eschatological feeling, doesn't it, right? Like, we're looking to the future here. Where's all this going, and who does it center around? Well, Barack Obama in this particular case, right? Or how about this one? This is eschatological as well. Like, you want to move forward? You want, to, you want things to be back the way they ought to be? Well, here's the man for the job. That, that's what they're trying to say through these messages. Now, I just sometimes think it's important to thoroughly alienate everyone to make sure you're awake. So now, now we can learn. See, eschatology is all around us, and frankly, we need it. Humans need it. We, 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 in order to thrive, we've got to know that there's purpose to this, that we're going somewhere, you know? Like if the universe will just continually expand forever and slowly cool off into nothing... Even if that's true, right, like we still will make up some sort of eschatology. We have to have it in order to thrive. Here's the problem. As our culture becomes more uh, secularized, at least the kind of prevailing mindset often is that there's this you know, advancement of atheistic, naturalistic beliefs, even though it might not be true, there's an explosion of spiritual kind of beliefs right now. But whatever the case, if that's, if that's the, the view, what we're finding is that we no longer have a basis for a very meaningful eschatology, and we're running into problems. We've tried to find it elsewhere. We've tried to locate in politics, as we've seen. The best politicians are the one who can spark that eschatological hope in us, but you know then we're always let down the first hundred days. We we try to find it most often, I'd say, either in politics or in scientific and technological progress, which I'm all for. I love it. But it's interesting how um, often, you'll notice, we attach a spiritual, mystical, eschatological, almost, language to science and technology sometimes. I was just watching a YouTube video yesterday. It was a dog trainer, and he and he, he made a comment. He said, I believe that technology is the closest thing we have to magic. It's just interesting how often we have this kind of uh, transcendent hunger in us and we look for it and even try to imagine it in places where it's not because we need it and we're hungry for it so much. And so we tried to put it in, you know, I don't know, scientific progress, but that's great and it's brought many wonderful things. I just had an MRI a few months ago and I'm thankful for that, you know. But it's also brought us you know, global warming and atom bombs. You know, it's, if we're going to place our eschatological hopes in that, then it might let us down too at times. Western nations are now, I think maybe for the first time in human history, eschatologically bankrupt. We have no clear sense of purpose, destiny, telos, end, where's this going? And when we do, it's often based on rather shaky foundations where we're trying to maybe force a square peg into a round hole or something. And we can see the results in deaths of despair, as well as other indicators. This bankruptcy is taking its toll on us. We need real hope. Mary's song is jam-packed with eschatology. See, back then they believed that just as God had rescued Israel, God's people, Mary's people, just as God had rescued Israel from Egypt, Hundreds of years before, they believed God was going to rescue them from Rome now. They believed that God was going to come and do something decisive in history on their behalf. Their eschatology was that God would return and lead them to freedom. And Mary's song declares, that time has arrived. Through this little baby in her womb, she's saying, it has come. The day has come. God is on the move. He is going to fulfill his promises. And the very first words that Mary says are the words, my soul glorifies the Lord. And this is like a a hyperlink back to another woman who got miraculously uh, pregnant, named Hannah. And she gave birth to the prophet Samuel and she sings those exact same words. And so what we see is like, just as God was doing something new then, God's doing something new now through Mary. And then she goes on and she quotes Psalms and she quotes prophets in this passage that Cheryl read. And, and what, she, what Mary's doing is she's connecting what God did then to what God is doing now. And she's telling us that God is coming to rule, and it's happening through this child in her womb. And what's most exciting about Mary's song is that it shows us what things will look like when God has taken charge, when when it's fully happened. And what we learn is that God is a God of justice, that he hears the cries of the poor and the needy, and he overthrows the proud. She says he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He he scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. So here's what God is doing, she says. He is turning the whole world order upside down on its head. That's the eschatology of Christmas. It's that God is lifting up the humble, the poor, the marginalized, and the needy. Now, one question about this text that I have and others have as well. Why does Mary put everything in the past tense? Not like it happened yet. All the verbs that she says in this song, or at least the ones I just listed off, they're they're in the past. In fact, to get a little technical, in in the Greek, they're in what's called the aorist tense. The aorist tense describes an action that happens in a moment is complete. It's like a like a baseball bat hitting a ball, like boom, it's over. That's the aorist tense. It's got kind of this punctiliar like it's a period, not a hyphen, you know? It's like it's it's over. It's done. All the verbs that she uses are in the aorist tense. God has seen the state of Mary. God has scattered the proud. God has brought down rulers. God has lifted up the humble. God has filled the hungry. And it's hard to bring out the kind of force of it, I think, in English. But all these aorist verbs, it's almost, to me, like they have this effect where it's like God's just checking things off a list. Just boom, boom, boom. Just taking care of business. Just knocking it out, you know? That's kind of what it, kind of what it feels like when you read in the original language. Now, some verbs describe actions that are unfinished they take place over a period of time and they're ongoing they're continuous phil is preaching a sermon you know like that's continually happening it's not over yet but that's not aorist that's not the aorist tense aorist tense has a has a finality to it and so that raises our question well you know how could these how could these things be so decisively complete if they if the baby's not even born yet I mean, how can Mary say that rulers have been brought down when Herod is still very much on the throne in Jerusalem and Caesar is still very much on the throne in Rome? Well, the answer is that in Mary's world, it was as good as done. For Mary, it was as good as done. She had such confidence in God's character that in her world, it was as good as done. Those rulers, their days are over. God has done something. Something's changed in the world, she says, and as a result now, the the poor has been lifted up. Reality has fundamentally shifted. And here's what we see in Mary's life. It's that to have hope in times of despair, listen, your eschatology must be more real to you than the world's. You gotta have that deeper in you than whatever else they're telling you. Mary's world told her a story, and you know what? She didn't buy it. The, that, that world said, that, you know what? God, your God is nothing. I mean, look around you, Mary. I mean, who's sitting on the throne right now? You know? Like, it ain't one of you. It's, it's Caesar. Look at Rome. Have you seen, n- the world's never seen anything like this before. Like, we conquered the whole world. The whole known world sits under Rome. Like, you telling me that you think your God is the one the true God? Like, you got to be kidding. You know? That, like, that's what they would say. But Mary, even against that kind of pressure, she clung to the story of her people and she believed that God would come. And so when the angel showed up, it was as good as done. And so the question is, you know, how do we live with that kind of confidence today? But we really, really do believe that what God says he's gonna do, he's gonna do. Listen, there's two ways. We talked about this before. We're gonna talk about it again. There's two ways we can view History. The first way is you can view history as a long defeat. This is where we see history as a slow descent into the toilet. You know, like sin and chaos and evil, they're just going to get really, really bad. And so our job as kind of Christians is we got to get over here in our holy huddle and over on the margins of society and try to be as holy as we can and hold on for dear life, until we die or Jesus comes back, whichever happens first. Because history is just a long defeat, and it's only going to get worse. Like, that's one way of thinking about things. There's another way. And the way that I think is probably more biblical, it's this, that, it is that history is God's unfolding mission. This is where we view history as like an unfolding plan of God's to rescue a dying world, as we sang, to come to a world that is dying. And we can see that as an invitation into what God is doing, even in the most unlikely times and places and circumstances. And so instead of viewing history with fear, you view it with curiosity. You say, okay, well, things don't look amazing right now, but I wonder what God might be doing in this because I know he's doing something. You know, like this isn't great. The numbers don't look really good right now, but I believe that God's doing something in this. How can I be a part of it? I wonder what he's doing. I wonder how I can join him. And so you start to view history. You start to view your your presence as well in the future with a curiosity and a wonder. And you start to say, how can I be a part of what God is doing in this? You see the fundamental difference. Both of these these views have hope. It's just that one of them assigns hope to like a distant unknown future. The other one assigns hope to right here. There's always something new around the corner that God might be doing. And I have to think that that's the way that Mary saw things. Now, I don't know that she necessarily was looking for God to come and do what he did, but she was open to God doing something completely unforeseen. Things were not looking great for the people of God in Mary's day. There were lots of people who took that first view, literally. There were sects in the Jewish faith, the Qumran sect, the Essenes. They would go out into the desert, they'd set up their communities, and they would just try to live as holy as they can and hoping that it would kind of stir God to move. You know. On one hand, you've got to respect that. You know, that that's, that's, that's some commitment there. It's not what Mary did. She thought that if history is actually about God's unfolding mission, then that can't be my approach, because it means there is something about what's happening now that matters. There's something about what's happening now that involves God's hand. And so here's the key for hoping once again. It's this. We must never lose our capacity to be surprised. We must never lose our capacity to be surprised by God. I don't care how awful your office is to you under those fluorescent lights for eight or nine hours a day. Like, it might just be miserable. You can't lose your capacity to be surprised at what God might be doing and what he might do in that place. We can't stop remembering the fact that God is a God who likes to show up in the least likely of places. This is what he likes to do. This is what kind of God we follow. And Christmas is what proves it to us. Mary is able to say, look at this new unexpected thing God's doing. Nobody would have ever imagined that the Messiah would come the way that he did. Nobody was looking for a Messiah to be born to a peasant girl in an out-of-the-way place, to be placed in a feeding trough. It happened under their noses and they missed it because they thought they knew. They thought they knew what God would do. They had lost their capacity for surprise. I'll be honest, I've spent a lot of time in that first camp, the long defeats, seeing history as a long defeat. Wow, look how bad things are, you know? I've thought that a lot in my life. I've, I love kind of cultural analysis and, you know, kind of tracking with trends and culture and stuff like that. And you know, I don't know if I wouldn't expect you to, but uh, for pastors, church attendance numbers aren't looking great, Okay, uh, basically in free fall over the last several years, getting worse. In fact, you kind of wonder how much needs there are going to be for like full-time paid pastors in a few decades. I don't, I don't know. You know. That sounds pretty sobering, doesn't it, if you're doing what I do? But then I'm like, wait a second, what's God maybe doing in that? You know, what if the thing that looks like a death is actually a rebirth? What if the thing that looks like failure is actually a winnowing, actually a purifying process? What if beyond my lifetime there is something that God does that the spirit moves in the church here and where we live and we don't even get to be here for it but it's amazing and we're setting the groundwork for it now. What if? You see the difference? You can take the information and you can go one of two ways with it. You can say look how bad things are or you can say I wonder what God's teaching us right now. I wonder what I need to learn in order to pursue and to to join God in this. Maybe this isn't a long defeat. Maybe it's a rebirth. So do you see now how your eschatology makes a big difference in your life, in the way that you view the world, in the way that you function? You've got one. We've all got one. To have hope in times of despair, we must move from a mindset of defeat to a mindset of wonder. We have to make that switch. We must learn to approach the world with a little curiosity and to transform things that look like threats into opportunities because that's what God does. His power is made perfect in our weakness, the Bible says. And so this is how we'll see things when our eschatology is more real to us than the world's. We'll live in the aorist tense. What God says he's gonna do is as good as done. And so here's the key. We must become wonderful not wonderful. Wonderful. Full of wonder. So when you go to your work, to when you go to your school, try going there with a little bit of wonder and say, what might God be up to here that I would have never imagined? And look, if you've lost hope that God can do anything in that space, if you've lost hope that God can do anything, then I'm sorry, you've lost the Christmas story too. Because that is the heart of the story, that God moves and does amazing things in the least likely of ways, in the least likely of places, to the least likely of people. That's what we believe. If you read, if you read the news, you'll notice that there is a prevailing eschatology out there. It goes something like this. Everything is bad. It's probably going to get worse. That's, that's our eschatology today, prevailing eschatology. You know what? I think it's time for a people to step forward with a rival eschatology with a better one that says, no, God has come, and he's going to come again. And until that, he's working, he's here, he's doing something, he's got more for you. That's why Christians, we can step into the darkest places with hope in our hearts and compassion on our face, because we have a different story to tell. And I think it's a better one, it's a truer one, it's a more hope-filled story. And so we have to be willing to claim God's story for us and to live it as though it's really true. It has to be what's really real to us. It has to form the foundation of our life and of our worldview, even in the face of some other stories that are very loud and very confident and very good at drawing our hearts. But that's simply what it means to be a Christian. It's to believe that the most unlikely And the most absurd and the most beautiful possibility is actually the one that is true. And nothing could be more unlikely or absurd or beautiful than the God of the universe becoming a baby in a womb. And that's a truth that I think should keep us full of wonder this season. Let's pray. Oh God, today we declare that um, what you promise is true, is happening, and will happen that you have come, that you have redeemed us, that you are redeeming us, and that you are coming again. And Lord, in the season of Advent, as we wait, the whole point is for us to put ourselves in a situation where we can't see the end, and we have to put ourselves in your hands. We have to wait in faith for you to come. And I am sure that there are many of us here today who are in an Advent of our own. They are waiting for you to move. And so, God, today we recommit ourselves to the fact that you are, are a God who shows up in the least likely of ways and the least likely of places, Lord, that our faith is nothing if not that. And so help us, help us to remember and help us to know that that is who you are. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name.